Welcome to Nothing Confidential, the podcast. I'm Kristen Henke, your hostess with the mostest, guide from the side, and mistress of ceremonies. Together, we're about to explore and deconstruct the shame and stigma surrounding our sexuality. You heard that right. We're going deep on the topics of sex, relationships, spirituality, health, and everything else that impacts our ability to live, love, and orgasm freely. My hope is to shine a light on our shared experiences by normalizing taboo topics and empowering each of you to reclaim autonomy of your pleasure, your bodies, and your lives. You are now entering a judgment-free zone where I ask all the uncomfortable and embarrassing questions for you. Our unofficial mantra is be curious, not judgmental. So leave your inner prude at the door or strap her in tight because this is happening. Hello, beautiful humans. It's Kristen. Welcome back to Nothing Confidential, the podcast. Or if it's your first time joining us, I am so grateful and happy to have you here with us. Today's guest, I'm just going to go ahead and take a deep breath because this woman is breathtaking in every way possible. She has impacted my life in such a big way. And her story is so rich and so tragic and so full of redemption and hope. And I just like listening back to this episode as I was preparing it to share with all of you, I was so moved just by just by her Um, Morgan Day Cecil, her professional bio reads a little like this. Morgan Day Cecil superpower is separating women from shame so that they can be set free to embody the woman they are made to be. She leads the Embody Academy, a three-month supportive chrysalis for emerging women, women ready to reclaim power, pleasure, and playfulness at the intersection of sexuality, spirituality, and success, and go from surviving to thriving and create way more impact in the world. She has a master's degree in philosophy and has spent 20 years training in mind-body methodologies, healing, and transformation, including breathwork, trauma release, hypnotherapy, deep feminine psychology, and Tantra. Her greatest desire is to bring light to dark places and help women heal their own gaze and expand their capacity to love and be loved. Um, she is all of those things and more. <laughs> and this conversation contains all of those things and more. I do want to offer a trigger warning to our listeners. Uh, Morgan shares very openly about a very traumatic sexual abuse uh, event in her life. And so I just want you guys to take a deep breath and um, be prepared for that. And if that is something that you are not able to handle right now, then I, especially my empaths and my trauma survivors, then I ask you to um, maybe skip this episode or save it for a later date. But this conversation was transformational. It was incredible. Um, I get super choked up in the middle of it, and I think I spent half the episode crying, but I did my best to breathe through it. Uh, Morgan and I had just, it was extremely intimate, and it was just one of those moments where you are holding space and another is laying their soul bare, and um, she did that. She did that here with all of us, and it was so beautiful and so healing, and I have been thinking about it ever since we recorded this episode a few months ago. So I can't wait for you to hear and please reach out to me, reach out to Morgan. I'm going to link all of her information for her programs, her offerings. She has a lot of beautiful free resources, her Instagram, uh, all of her work is really transformational. So I'm going to put all that into the show notes for you. Please take the time to go through and look at that stuff and reach out to Morgan directly if you have um, questions, thoughts, if you would like to work with her, I would highly, highly recommend that. And send me, as always, a direct message and let me know how this episode made you feel. Let me know if it brought up anything for you. Let me know if you relate to her story and if you need somewhere safe to share your own story. I am here for that. That is what I am here for. That is what this platform was designed for. I am here to hold space for you and to witness you without judgment and to offer you the opportunity to tell your story in a safe place, um, free from shame and, uh, and fear. So sending a lot of love, holding all of you in my heart. Talk soon. 
we are back. Nothing confidential, the podcast and this conversation. When I say that it has been years in the making, I mean that I have been following the work of this woman for years. We connected in person finally uh, last year and had a really incredible um, conversation and we were able to collaborate on a special project that I was working on that'll be coming up again later this year. Um, but Morgan Day Cecil is with me today in the Nothing Confidential Zoom room and I am so thrilled to have her here. Morgan, welcome. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here, Kristen. Uh, so Morgan is somebody who, when I came across her work, I was in a very interesting, like the early stages of my spiritual reconstruction after years of deconstruction. And for any of you who know a little bit about my story and my background, um, you know, that is coming out of a place of being raised in a very conservative Christian homeschooled community and then branching away from that um, because of some trauma and some things that happened and kind of learning to find and evolve my spirituality in a way that felt more in alignment for me. And someone introduced me to Morgan's work because she is an expert at navigating and helping give language to and supporting people in crossing that intersection of spirituality and sexuality um, in, in lots of really nuanced ways. But I just felt like the support and the language that I learned through your work during that time um, was really, really transformational. Mm -hmm. So I can't even, I can't even tell you guys, like my brain is already firing on like a million. It's like, where are we going to go today? Yes, I'm <laughs> excited. I love a space where nothing is taboo. Yeah. It's magical. <laughs> You've created that. So thank you so much for what you do. It's so good. It's so needed. And it's so fun. Isn't it fun? Oh, it is fun. And thank you for showing up here in your yeah. black sweater dress with your <laughs> saucy, oh. dewy skin. I just can't even handle it. Um, all right. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to decide. Like, I literally am like, where do I want to start? So because of all of the work that you have been doing lately, um, I feel like when I was introduced to your work, and we just talked about this a little bit, you were attracting a lot of people who had kind of grown up in the purity culture the way that I had, which is something that we've, we've called that we've like coined this phrase, um, where basically, you know, virginity is key and it's part of your identity. And it essentially teaches you that your pleasure and your body and the sacredness of your sexuality doesn't actually belong to you. It's being saved very specifically, um, for your eventual partner and for the Lord, but that it doesn't have anything to do with you. Um, but then you've since moved, you know, into a broader conversation because that's not like we've all received wounds from being um, restricted and shamed around sexuality, whether it was cultural, spiritual, um, trauma-based. We've all kind of ended up in the same place of not knowing how to embody our sexuality in a way that feels safe or that feels um, good or that feels holistic. Like some of it's been tainted for a lot of us and it feels really dirty and gross and all of these things. However, you didn't come into this conversation from that place. You didn't start yeah. in the church being raised this way and then kind of broke out. You had the exact opposite yeah. um, intro to everything. So can we start with your backstory and like where you sure. started yes. and how you kind of like reverse engineered this whole space? Yeah. Yeah. It's a story for sure. It's been a journey. But what comes to mind to share first is that while my peers and uh, friends were getting the message that sex was wrong, you know, the purity culture message that if you have sex as a teenager, let's say, before you're married, then that is so wrong and so shameful. I actually got the message that it was wrong to wait till marriage. <laughs> Very shocking. My parents, I was not expecting to hear this from them. Like we did not grow up in a religious environment. We didn't go to church together. They're very secular, but there is like that Christian morality that just over just, it's like the umbrella over our culture. And so I too got the messages, this like double standard that, you know, it was really important to be attractive, really important to be appealing to the male gaze. But yet like, it was wrong and you were kind of whorish or you would be a slut 
if you had sex or were involved in any type of sexual relationship before marriage. So I heard those. I kind of got that just being in the water of our culture. But I remember coming home from school and it was one of the earliest like, sex talks we got. So like a health class about, we're talking about AIDS, we're learning all about sex and it's all from the fear-based perspective, right? <laughs> it's like AIDS, AIDS, AIDS. This is right. the <laughs> You're going to get pregnant or die. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And so I remember very proudly saying like, I'm going to wait till I'm married until I have sex. And we were driving in the car and I feel like I have this memory of them just screeching the brakes, turning really fast, whipping around in their chair and was telling me, no, you don't want to do that. And here's why. And they listed all the reasons why, you know, sex is such an important part of a relationship. It's really important to know if you are sexually compatible with someone and you're young, you want to experiment around and there's so much, and it was just like, what? I, I doubt any of my peers are getting this take on things. <laughs> and so I am grateful that I did not get from my parents the idea that sex was shameful and that being a sexual creature, a woman was shameful. I didn't get that at all, but I still was confused because my culture, our culture, um, communicated this message that to be sensual, to be really bodacious, to be out there, to own your sexuality was wrong, was too much. And so I would say what marked my uh, teenagers especially was this confusion that I didn't know what was actually safe. And going back before that, my childhood, my mom suffered depression and anxiety, and she uh, was married before and was in an abusive, sexually violent marriage. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of trauma for her that she never got the opportunity to heal or process. And so she brought that into her life and it was manifested as depression. So as a little girl growing up, I really wanted to delight my mom and see myself in her. And, you know, this is what we do. Our first mirror is our mother. But instead of being able to be mirrored back, like it's safe to feel full of life. It's safe to be dancing around in your underwear. It's safe to be full of joy and delight. I, what was mirrored back to me that it was that it was not safe to be the fullest version of myself. So I learned that to be a woman meant to like really play small, to turn inward into this dark place and to um, withdraw really from the fullest version of yourself. So as a little girl, I felt this dual reality. Like when I was alone, there was this magical sense of everything being sacred. Like I loved love dancing around in the forest and pretending that fairies and unicorns and all the magical things were my friends. And I just felt very much connected to the natural world and just, it was just bursting with life. And I felt that life force in me. And then I also loved like the real, like world of the human beings. Like I loved Marilyn Monroe. Like I loved like this, this idea of this playful, beautiful, seductress woman. And I had pictures of her all over my wall. And so on one hand, I was a big hippie listening to Bob Marley and smoking weed in my bedroom by myself. <laughs> and then on another hand, I was just like fascinated with uh, glamour and seduction and, but in a really playful, innocent way, what that looks like to be a woman. Cause I did not see it modeled for me and my mom. I saw, you know, a lot of pain in her and a lot of darkness and sadness in her. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we learn what it means to be a woman from our caretakers at, at first place that we get that mirroring, what it means to be who we are. So very, very confused growing up and conflicted and that inward sense of like, I don't know who I am. I think I know who I am, but like, is it safe to be who I am? Maybe I don't know who I am. Am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? And that question, who am I? Am I okay? Was like the dominant question of my life as a child and teen. Mm. First of all, that is probably the most eloquent way I've ever heard anyone explain the relationship between, um, a, a daughter and a mother, like looking, like looking to someone to learn about your sexuality, having that mirror experience mm -hmm. and what we may or may not see mirrored back, how that impacts us. Um, yeah. I don't think I, I had, yeah, I hadn't gotten, I haven't come to something quite that, that beautiful. That was like a poetic way to, mm -hmm. um, explain that because, you know, I too grew up with a mother who 
very much her views of the world and sexuality and all of that were based deeply in fear and for a very good reason. She had an extremely um, sexually and generally traumatic upbringing. And so when I, you know, looked at her or brought those things up or was curious about those things, there was always kind of a, a triggering and a fear reaction mm -hmm. um, that very much made it feel like the world was not a safe place to be. And our job was to stay as covered up as possible and not to um, provoke anything and not to invite anything and to to keep ourselves safe. Right. Um, you know, at the time it felt very oppressive, but it's like, obviously as you get older, you look back and you're like, all I see is someone who was terrified yes. and wanted to protect as much as possible. And that's it. You know, at the end yeah. of the day, like, it's all about the trying to stay safe and yeah. what our parents passed down to us unknowingly is this smaller sense of what it means to be a human being based on their fears, based on what was handed to them, you know? And so it's, the goal is always survival, safety number one. And so the things that, you know, we present as little kids, you know, our fullness, our exuberance, our sexuality, because we have some form of sexuality from the very beginning, mm -hmm. even in utero. And so when we present that joy and confidence and boldness, like all our parents can see, you know, especially being raised in any form of this culture, danger, 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 especially for a little girl. And mm -hmm. so they are coming from a place of protection and is usually we're shamed in these areas of fear. And so it was their fear that then shamed us, but it wasn't from a place of, you know, they didn't love us. They wanted, they didn't want us to be happy or fulfilled. They really just wanted to keep us safe. And that was the best they knew how. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this, I'm like, I don't know if this is the, the appropriate time to jump right into this. Um, basically, you know, a lot of us started in a very constricted area and kind of worked our way free. Whereas despite the fact that it sounds like you still received, you know, a lot of that fear-based shame that was very accidental because they did very much want you to be open and explore certain things. And they didn't want you to shut down that part of yourself. You then at a young age suffered from a very brutal trauma that mm -hmm. then added the layering of all of that stuff on for you. Um, yeah. Can you share about that? Yes. And the first time I remember being raped, and I say the first time I remember is because I, there are some latent memories that are just lingering there. But the first time that like this marks a very, um, like a split in my life, like a split from a part of my soul. I was 15. And at the time, like, this is what I say, like, this is, it's so challenging to be a woman growing into womanhood because there's so many mixed messages around how to own our power, how to use our voice. How, is it okay to say no? How do we say, how do we, I mean, I, at that time at 15, I just wanted to be hot. I just wanted to be adored. I just wanted boys to notice me. We all did. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. my gosh. And being a late bloomer, like I did not get boobs until I was 15. And so I watched, I watched all the peers around me, all the girls like get their first boyfriends and, you know, be asked to the dance. And I just felt like such an outsider. And I just so deeply wanted to belong and be adored and be noticed. And so when I started being noticed, there was no sense of like, that I still had a voice in that, like of what I wanted. And so it felt very much like my life depended on being chosen or being wanted by a man. Even, you know, it's like, I didn't grow up in purity culture, but still the sense that like my value was really connected to how men, boys saw me. And I was looking at myself through their eyes all the time. Mm -hmm. Who am I based on what do they see? Who am I based on what they notice in me? what's good, you know, all that. So another layer to this was uh, alcohol and drinking and this uh, scene where it was encouraged to kind of escape yourself and it was cool to escape yourself. And so these two worlds came crashing in on me at the very same time, like this world of partying and escape and drinking a lot and all of a sudden being noticed my boys and loving that attention and also having no idea what to do with that attention or how to hold my own in that space. 
I think it's amazing to be noticed and adored and get that attention, but it's the mature woman who knows how to hold her own in that space. And at 15, I had no idea how to do that. So I just collapsed into being who they wanted me to be. And of course it was so scary because I was so, I had no practice, no experience in my sexuality. And so I didn't know like where things would go. And I just assumed, I think that I was going to be safe and protected and nothing would happen to me that I wasn't ready for, but that's not what happened. So the, the highlights of the story that I think are relevant for your listeners is that, um, I was invited to a Christian youth group by these two boys who they were like my longtime crushes, you know, both of them contending for first place of which one I was crushing on more ever since like kindergarten. And it felt like such an honor to be noticed and for one, to be asked out on any date, but two, like, there was like a special honor that they wanted to like show me their God. Like, I not growing up in, the religious world at all. Like I was always like, like an observer on the outside being like, what would it take to be inside? Like, Ooh, who do I have to be to belong there in a church and to feel like that's my place and to be worthy of God's love and community like that. And so my relationship with God as a little kid, I would say is was very much connected with the Holy spirit. Like, I just love God and I just love the sacredness and all things and feeling God's presence in nature and dancing and the arts. But I was always so curious about Christianity and religion and Jesus. And so when they invited me to Young Life, I felt like, oh my gosh, this is my moment. Not only do they think of me as like hot and attractive, they want, they think that I'm worthy of knowing their God. And I felt like honored by the ask. Um, but things I like, turned sour really quickly because those same boys, like right after uh, one of our youth group meetings, we came back to my house, drank all the alcohol, you know, and I was I blacked out. There's a grace there that I don't remember the details. There's some foggy things in and out, but my sisters ended up finding me like naked lying, just passed out. And the boys were downstairs eating Doritos and laughing. Mm. And I wasn't coming to, and so they brought me to the hospital and I had to get my stomach pumped and being underage, they then asked me these questions. And then what ensued was this drama, this like amazing shame around what happened that night. And, you know, there was police officers that interviewed me and talked because I was underage and the, they, the boys were bragging about sleeping with me. And I had never slept with anyone before. And so the whole thing was just mortifying. And I was um, felt very alone through that. I didn't have anyone to talk to through that. And I really took on the, the common storyline that it's a woman's fault. Mm. So literally for 15 years, I felt like it was my fault. It happened at 15. It wasn't until 30 years old that I began to heal and grieve that trauma. And, that's what, and could even say it was rape. It just felt way too overwhelming to own that that's what happened to me. And looking back on it now, honestly, the bigger trauma, aside from you know the rape itself, I mean, that my body remembers that. And I had to go through uh, healing, sexual trauma healing, to get to the place of feeling safe and liberated in my body again. But the bigger trauma was the silence and the shame that I harbored, that I felt truly disqualified from God. I felt truly disqualified from being this like whole integrated, um, integral woman that was like worthy of respect and love and safety. I just felt like the poor, like the classic archetype of, you know, trash. And so what, that ended up doing because our self-image determines a lot how we see ourselves from the inside what we think we're worthy of what we think we're disqualified for that determines our thoughts our beliefs our actions and so i found myself from that year on in so many unsafe situations and there were more rapes after that because and i didn't think of them as rapes they were date rapes but i didn't want it but i was too afraid to say no and I felt the line that literally went through my 15, 16, 17 year old head was, if you can't beat them, join them. 
And it was the sense that I don't physically have the power to, to do anything about this situation. It was like the frozen feeling of powerlessness. And so I just turned off and I just went somewhere else and I just gritted my teeth and had just waited for it to be over. And all the justification that went through that, like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Like, sex not that big of a deal. Like, just get it over with. Like, because you don't know what's going to happen if you do fight. Mm-hmm. And, and I was terrified of um, not just like the, the violence or the physical thing that could ensue if I tried to fight back, but I was even more terrified of the social ramifications or the being rejected. And that deep desire to belong and to be approved of was running the show, was running the entire show of my teen and 20s until like I came to a place where and this was after I gave my life to Jesus and began to really step into the fact that I'm not disqualified, that I am so worthy of protection and love and safety and adoration and being treated uh, really good by a man and other people, yeah. you know, that I decided I'm no longer going to betray myself. And so this has like definitely shaped my entire career that I have been able to kind of lead out in these areas that other people, it feels very unsafe to, or it feels like I am out there and maybe it's a little dangerous, the stuff that I'm talking about or presenting or, but I decided with like the presence of Christ in me, that's like, I'm no longer going to betray myself in order to belong. Hmm. I just got chill bumps and I'm also like over here, like, my brain is like spinning and I'm trying not to cry. And like, there's all these, um, you know, emotions. Um, yeah, I'm going to take a breath. I think a lot of that has to do with obviously the fact that I'm so much more conscious around these things because I have a daughter who's on the way and you also have a daughter and yes. a son. And so that brings me to this piece that I think is really vital where instead of the word um, purity, which is, is used a lot, it is thrown around a lot in, um, in, in church, in, in cultural circles, like it, it doesn't, it's not relegated just to the church. Um, but purity is such a, um, mislabeling, I feel like. And so at, at one point I remember you mentioning a lot of people, you know, kind of go into this like, oh, well, once you get saved and you give your life to Christ and it's like, you kind of get a a shot at like redoing your purity and you use a word that I prefer and that I think is much stronger. And that's actually innocence. You talk Mm -hmm. about restoring innocence. Yes. Um, Yeah. Pregnancy hormones slash just my heart. Like, yes. Could you share with us about just kind of from that point, like living with that, getting to 30, finding your spiritual connection and your relationship, um, how you began to pursue the the reclamation of your innocence and how that feeds into your healing and the healing that took place after that? Yeah. I'm going to start crying too. <laughs> I think I appreciate the, the rawness and the space to be real and just to feel the feelings. Because honestly, I, it's easy to tell a story and be disconnected emotionally from the actual experience of it. But the tears that want to come now are like just tears of gratitude because it does feel like a special gift I was given, like this ability to connect to innocence through this real belief that came through my faith that my heart is good. Yeah. My heart is good and my body is good. And that does feel like a grace because I've, I've worked with so many women one-on-one and in my programs that it's really hard to believe that because they got the message early on that they, their heart was bad. And of course you can pull scripture that points to that, you know, like that heart is full of deceit. But I didn't ever believe that I really like deeply believe my heart was good and that why would Jesus want to live in my heart if it was bad? <laughs> like it just doesn't make sense like theologically, you know. So, you know, when I came into the church, it was through the door of, ev- of evangelical Christianity and it was all about Jesus living in your heart. 
and accepting Jesus into your heart and that language. And so I was just like, okay, I just trust that this the king of the universe that like chooses to live somewhere good. So I really did believe that. And that was like the portal to reclaiming my innocence. And then the reclaiming the innocence gave, you know, brought in this possibility of playfulness again, that I didn't have to live in the dark forever for all of the things that had happened to me. And, you know, what I didn't share in my story, but from the 15 to 27 until I was a mom, I was on antidepressants because all of a sudden after this experience, a traumatic event, I was, I was, fell into a depression that my mom didn't know what to do with. Looking back on it now, when I think about going to see the psychiatrist for the first time, it baffles me that this never even came up. I never even told my therapist about this experience. I was only there to get on Prozac. And that was the solution. And I put that in quotes because that's the best my mom knew that in the nineties, that was the best we yeah. did. So in a lot of ways. It's like, okay, something wrong with your brain. You're not happy. Like get on some drugs. And I cycled through antidepressants for over 10 years because nothing was really working. It was something that worked for a while. And then I hit another low and I would really deeply dive into the darkness and when I was pregnant with my son, who I was a single mom, talk about the shame again, like that, mm-hmm. that going through pregnancy alone was the single most hardest experience of my life to be able to walk to the grocery store, to be able to show up places without a wedding ring with my belly getting bigger and being like, I have no idea what the future holds, but somehow I have to figure out how to hold my head up high for this little being coming into the world because I want to show up for him as the best version of myself. So that was, those nine months were the hardest nine months of my life. And at six months, it was overwhelming. It was the darkness, the depression, the panic attacks overtook me and I attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. And I ended up in a hospital and they cared for me and I got help. And I was a part of this, you know, these crazy people. Like we're all in the psych ward, you know, we're all there because we're crazy. Like we're just not quite right. But they were my people. Like, I felt like a sense of like, oh my God, here it's safe for all parts of me to belong. I don't have to pretend I'm, I have it figured out because I really don't. And I'm really scared. And I feel all these sorts of things inside that I, make me doubt that I can be a good mom and I can have a successful life and all these things. But there it was okay to be real. And so along with like, so this, this, this aspect of community, this aspect of even if they're not... Um, we, we need each other. We need safe places where we can show up all parts of us, the dark and the light. For me, like reclaiming that dark was really, really important. And to knowing that like, it's not what defines me. Because for so long, I felt the depression and the darkness define me, the shame, everything about my life and history that disqualified me from dot, dot, dot. That felt very weighty and I was attached to that in my identity. But the gift of um, reclaiming innocence meant that like the truest part of my identity was this original wholeness, this essence of lightness and love and beauty and all these things. It's like springtime. And I really connected with that. And in my work, it's become a real dominant theme in my work and how I approach coaching and one-on-one and the transformation is that healing is a love story. It's a re- reclamation of our innocence and that we can have a lot of fun in this process. It doesn't have to feel so heavy and overwhelming. Like we can actually do the very best work, the best freedom work from this place of playfulness and playfulness is power. And when we connect to that sense, that innocence, like we get access to all this inner resources within. There's so many sacred resources within. And that is the beginning, that innocence piece of being able to say, yes, my heart is good and so is my body. And I I feel like you took just the most epically multi-layered shit cake and like designed this British baking show like masterpiece (laughs) out of it. And it's been, it's such an incredible thing to witness because- for someone with such a history of trauma, history of shame, especially around sexuality, and then to end up um, 
where you are today, where you are not only teaching in sexuality, you are one of the most embodied uh, feminine energies that I personally know as far as being in contact with that pleasure-focused sensuality, that like divine feminine peace. And you're also married to an amazing man. Yes, he's so Um, amazing. (laughs) And I I love, I love your story about how you met Mr. Cecil. And if you want to give them um, the short version of that, um, I would love that because you suffered so much um, damage and trauma at the hands of um, unconscious men. Mm -hmm. And then you were brought this man and give us a yeah. quick intro into that because oh, I goodness. have some questions about yes. being <laughs> sexually whole within a relationship after everything that happened. Yes. Wow. So it's, I'm going to have to just take a breath here in a moment just to figure out what is the short <laughs> version of this story because it is, it is such a. I know. I'll have to have you life. back like yeah. five, Talk six about times. relationships. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this love story that we share, it really, again, feels mm-hmm. like so much grace. And this is why um, I've always felt challenged by teaching on relationships because I do feel that my husband is such a grace in my life. Like, so I don't know exactly what I did to prepare for this man, but I know that there was stuff going on underneath the surface. And one moment that comes to mind is I was a single mom. I was... um, Finding my rhythm as a single mom. My son was about um, a year and a half. And I remember driving down the freeway to this self-development workshop because I'm always into like learning about Same. How, yes, personal <laughs> development. I'm just like into it. I wanted, I want to learn. I want to learn. So I was on my way down to this like random like conference room in this like ghetto hotel, like a suburb of Portland. Like I don't even know what the <laughs> personal development workshop was about. I probably saw it on a flyer at a cafe and I'm just like, I'm going. But there was this like divine moment. I was there, I was listening to my music. Um, my, my mom had my son for the day. And I just felt like this amazing personal time. It was like a soul date with myself. And there was a moment, it was like literally a moment, like just boom, I knew, and I said this out loud, I'm ready now to let someone love us. Mm. And it was like a real shift in my being and consciousness and energy because I was ready to love someone my whole life, like ready to love someone. But I never knew that feeling of, no, now my body, my soul is ready to be loved. Mm. And to, to be loved, to receive love, for me and Luca, my son, to be chosen. And it was like, boom, it was like entering into a different paradigm. And shortly after that, like Ronnie and I, it was like, yep, he's, he's the one. And that whole story of how we got reconnected is just kind of its own mythos. It's kind of wild and amazing, but we, we actually knew each other from our past lives, you know, like just different versions of like, he was married before I was a party girl and getting my graduate degree. <laughs> I was a party girl while I was studying Eastern philosophy. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I love the duality always, everything belongs, <laughs> but um, my whole life has kind of been like that. Um, but I, I saw him as someone who was really safe. He was really special. He was different than any other man I had dated. And I, he was married at the time, so of course he was off limits and I, my mind never, ever entertained. He was like a brother to me in that circle of friends. And I remember a moment when I just looked at him and I was like, I wonder what it would be like to be that kind of woman that he mm. was attracted to or someone like that, you know? And I really, because at that time in my early 20s, I still identified with the fact that I was damaged goods, that I wasn't worthy of a good man that the best I could hope for is to be hot and then maybe someone would find me physically attractive, but I didn't feel worthy of this caliber of like a spiritual relationship, like a deeply soul, like we are each other's like people. But when we got reconnected again and I had had my son and he had gotten a divorce and we were both like down and out, like it was like both of us were throwing these curveballs. Like he was a good Christian boy that never planned on getting a divorce and really was terrified of divorce as a, um, that scarlet letter on him. And for me, I already had that scarlet letter on me being a single mom. And so we really, when we got reconnected again, we really related that life had thrown us these curveballs. 
we weren't who we wanted to be, you know, our life wasn't turning out how we thought it would. And so there was this real deep connection of vulnerability being like, yep, this is a shit show. Like my life really, this is not, did not go as planned. And, um, and there was like that humility and also like this belief that the future was going to be better. And I remember like in our, one of our early connections, it was via email. He was, he was living in England at the time and I was living at home with my parents and he had written this story about his year and unraveling and what that did to his soul and his faith and, and, and how he was learning how to rebuild and his journey through divorce really mirrored my journey as a single mom. And I felt seen and I felt known and I felt like there was a deep soul connection. And so just to say like, I see you, I get you. I sent him a poem by T.S. Eliot. And the first line, this is like a, from a much longer poem of East Cocker, but the first line of this segment said, in the end is my beginning. Mm -hmm. And so both of us, like we were at the end of the life that we knew, but it was the beginning of the life that we were about to create together. Neither one of us had any idea that it would be us. So there's actually so much more magic to that story. That I know. Like, and I'm just, <laughs> it's just kind of a crazy, like so conscious of your time. And I'm like, what can I fit in for <laughs> before I run out? There are two things. There are two primary things that I feel like I have to work into this episode. And then I yeah. promise you guys, I will have her back as soon as I can <laughs> so that we can go off on all the things. Yes. Um, but just connecting back to I, I want this to really serve and provide yes. um, value and permission and grace to anyone who is dealing with really deep shame, regardless of where it came from. Um, yes. I'm, I think today I've kind of reached the point where it's like, I'm done um, demonizing specifically just the church and purity culture because yeah. it's not, it's not just that, like it, yeah. it doesn't just come from there. There's so many women who are going to listen to this, who have got that from other places. Yes. So two two things so that I don't forget and we can connect them however you see fit. The one is for women who are struggling deeply with that shame, that shame that we know so well, um, of, of their former life, of who they used to be. It's like they've been doing all of this work and they're now to this place where they're, you know, they're conscious and they're more aligned and they're more connected, but especially when it comes down to their feminine seat and their, their sexuality and their ability to feel worthy of embodying the pleasure yeah. and the sexuality in, in a way, in that sexy, holy way that you talk yes. about. Um, I want to speak to that. I want to speak to how to um, address and look at those past versions of ourselves with love and with compassion and with grace. Uh, and then I want to move into um, what you were saying to me right before we hit record, uh, having to do with that book that you're reading right now about yes. the the patriarchy and uh, mm -hmm. all of that. So yes, we got to get that in before you <laughs> go. Gotta so. get it. There all we go. It. Yeah. Yes. All right. So let me speak to how we can start really, I'm trying to use, think about how we want to talk about shame. I think dissolving the shame, like for me is what like the metaphor, it's like allowing like this, um, this experience, this memory to actually dissolve into the bigger picture of who you are, the bigger waters of love. And I remember a teacher who told me that the only place we can ever receive unconditional love from is God or ourselves. And honestly, it's really hard to receive unconditional love from God, like actually embody it and feel it until we've created that space in ourselves. And so one of the gifts that I've been given is to be able to push back the shame in a woman's life so she can have an encounter with God, the God as she understands God. And from that moment, she can see herself through the eyes of the beloved. And when you can see yourself from the eyes of the beloved, that shame is dissolves. You no longer are tied to the old stories. You have so much compassion and can see that you are truly doing the best that you could. The eyes of compassion and love change everything. So learning how to see yourself through those eyes, learning the, the art of real radical self-acceptance, this is the way. And the shame does dissolve. 
because and this is there's so many things I could speak to here and there are practices of course that we can all be doing to help dismantle that shame the reason why I do what I do with women and the way that I'm doing it moving forward is that there's something powerful that happens when we can receive a transmission mm. that it's so much more than what we read or what we learn about with our mind but if we can sit in the presence of someone who can mirror back to us our worth our innocence our goodness then it changes and what's true that what we learn from neuroscience is that at any given moment like we can pick up on seven maybe seven plus or minus two bits of information but the unconscious mind is taking in and processing millions of bytes of information. So I speak of energy a lot, sexy, holy energy, because so much of the work that I do is this energy transmission. That women, whether they're coming with me on a Sophia retreat or they're working with me one-on-one, -on -one, I'm teaching them the things that will reprogram their nervous system. And I'm also creating this space where the unconscious mind, their deepest resource can receive. And it's just by being in this presence of love, this like ocean of love that dissolves the shame. And so the, the, the route that um, you know, we can take to do it our, on our own is through radical self-acceptance. And that may take one year, 10 years, all our life, who knows, you know? And that's like, you say the mantras and you are really working on your mindset. For me, that wasn't enough. I didn't want to spend my whole life reprogramming so I could accept myself. I wanted to get to the good part. I wanted to get to the place where I could just be who I am and move out and create the life that I want from that place. And so I've really sought out the teachers, the programs, the experiences that would give me that download. And that's what I do for women. It's like I wanna give them that download and so they can get in a day, 90 days, what other, their moms may still be looking for, or other women may wait a lifetime for. There's no reason, like I'm all about sensuality and sensuality is slowing down. But when it comes to self-acceptance and dismantling that shame, there is no reason to take the slow road. Get there as fast as you can because you have a whole life out there to live, a life that is full of romance and adventure and it's waiting for you. So yes, get yourself around the people that can mirror to you <laughs> your truth, mirror to you your wholeness. That is my like biggest advice. Work with the people that can just mirror to you what was what what should have been mirrored to you when you were four or five or six. Mm -hmm. But we can't blame our parents because they're doing the best they can, yeah. and they didn't get the mirroring either. No, they couldn't. They had no. their own. They had their own shame yes. programming that they hadn't been able to dissolve or didn't have access to or or whatever. Um, but that mirroring piece is really mm -hmm. important. Also, I'm really geeky about neuroscience. I think neuroscience and spirituality have, mm -hmm. are just coming closer and closer together. Mm -hmm. This energy piece is so important. But they now know that there's this thing called mirror neurons, that when we are in the presence of another, their tone of voice, their gaze, their body language, all of that is informing us. All of that is doing something to us. And we can become more centered, more authentically ourselves in the presence of another person who is more authentically themselves. So it's not about copycatting. It's not about just repeating back to like the mannerisms of your teacher. It's actually when you are with a woman, especially a woman, because we are women, who model for you, mirror for you, authentic self-expression, you get access to your authentic self-expression. And that is the opposite of toxic comparisonitis. Like yes. that is the antidote to that toxic, like self-judgment, comparing, um, competition. It's like, let's stop focusing on, you know, whether she's more of this than us or right. not and focus on the things about her that we are drawn to and that we are intuitively attracted to and allow her to mirror those things for us so that we can access them ourselves. Yes, exactly. It activates it. You mm -hmm. get access to it in a whole nother way. It's like this deep sense of permission. Mm -hmm. It's such a, it's so powerful that when we are around each other and we are saying, yes, it's safe to be all of who we are. It's really, truly safe. And so we get this permission to start pressing out against these, these 
barriers that we put up against it because we've only learned that it was safe within this small box, mm. this small realm. But then we're seeing we're around women who are on the outside of that. And then we see how much thriving and how well they're doing and how integrated they are. We're like, wait a second, that's safe too? Let me try that on. And in the company of these safe women or a safe mentor or coach, you can try on these newer versions of yourself that are actually more, more reflective of your truest self, your original essence. And then you learn, oh, the nervous system says, oh, it actually is safe to be like this. It's safe to communicate what I want. It's safe to experience pleasure. It's safe to desire sex and desire the deepest dreams in my heart that I've had since I was a little girl, whether it's like to make a million dollars or to ride a horse and to travel the world. All those desires are safe. And that is super important because this is the key. Like we will never get what we want what we deeply desire until it's safe enough, our nervous system feels, our primal mind feels, it's safe enough for us to have it. The only reason why we don't have those things, whether it's the relationship, the career, the family, the house, it's because some part of us doesn't believe it's safe for us to have it. So that's the work that I do is I help women create the safety so they can have the things and feel the way they really want, which is really reflective of who they really are. And no doubt that every, everything she has, like, unfortunately, I do not have time to have her explain or delve into all of the things that are available because she has been working on these tools for so long and cultivating so many resources that are so incredibly powerful. Um, I will link all of those and provide overviews and ways for you to find and connect with and work with Morgan in whatever capacity um, you're feeling called to at this point in time. But the perfect kind of tie-in for the last thing I want you to talk about just dropped in for me. And that is as a mother of a daughter and a son, you have the masculine yeah. and the feminine who you are, you and Ron are constantly mirroring to mm -hmm. with this new kind of overview that you've moved into yeah. with your work about how, um, you know, really the, the patriarchy and all of that is, is shaping and impacting so many things that, um, that religion and culture are being blamed for, but it's all yeah. kind of coming from the same place. Mm -hmm. Can you give like a quick overview of that tie-in and then just um, any thoughts or feelings around how you're showing up and mirroring for your kids in a way to protect them and make them conscious and make them aware in that space now that we're understanding this more than we ever have? Yes. For the patriarchy piece, I will just highly recommend your listeners go out and check out this book by Dr. Valerie Rain, who is a brilliant psychologist, Columbia trained, that has worked so many years with women, high-performing women, and has classified and identified what she calls patriarchy stress disorder and wrote a whole book about it. And she talks about this as the invisible inner barrier to women's happiness and success. And I've personally got a chance to talk with Valerie Rain and she is amazing. She's brilliant. And what her work is going to send ripples like through, through our space, through this space of healing, what it looks like because at the end of the day, we're all traumatized and it could be ancestral trauma, which is passed down through our DNA. It could be the collective trauma of just being a woman in this time. Also, the Jungian idea that this like collective unconscious, these experiences of women that not, aren't necessarily our experiences in our history, but we really, we, we empathically experience them at some level. And then our own history, our personal history of what's happened to us, the traumas, all of that. And how she defines the patriarchy stress disorder is this feeling that it's unsafe to be the fullest expression of yourself. And it's this feeling of being worth less than a man as defined by the patriarchy. And men are also affected by this because for instance, my husband who was raised by three women exhibits so many qualities that are attributed more to the feminine. He's an amazing listener. He has a high emotional intelligence, but he remembers specifically like wanting to reject that toxic masculinity. He's like, if this is what it looks like to be a man, to treat women like shit, to, you know, be how this bravado and, you know, that's not what I want. And so he's been held back too. So the, it's not just women that are held back by the patriarchy, this idea that we're somehow worth less than a man. And it's a really small definition of what a man is. All of us 
are affected by this. And so I, she's so brilliant at this. I just highly recommend to go to the source to uh, learn from it, learn from her and learn more about patriarchy and stress disorder. That for me is a word I'm starting to get comfortable to say because honestly, I don't like labels so much. It makes me like, I don't want to create division. I don't mm -hmm. want to create um, an us and a them. I don't want men to think I'm against them. And that's so much of the idea that, oh my gosh, if you're talking about the patriarchy, then you must be a man hater. And that is not it at all. I love men so much. I love men. Me I love my too. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so like, I want their wholeness as well. Mm -hmm. I'm for their wholeness and we are in this together. So, um, but I'm learning how to um, feel comfortable just reckoning with what is in our history mm -hmm. and the institutional oppression around women and people who aren't the exact perfect box of what patriarchy elevates and says, this is the ideal. Da, 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 da. Well, and I think that goes for so many things. It's like, we're each trying to deconstruct and heal and raise our collective consciousness as a society, as individuals, so that we can kind of reclaim and redefine what Christianity is, what feminism yeah. is, what all of these different things that have very, like they've been meant, they've been made to mean very specific things by very yeah. like outspoken people. Yes. And I think that's why it's so important to have perspective. That's why it's important to have these conversations that are kind of open-ended that don't have an agenda where it's like, my experience was this, your experience was this, both were valid and there is, um, there is healing and there are lessons and there is new language to be gathered from all of those things. And it's mm -hmm. not about getting somebody on your side. It's not about, you know, proving a point. It's about expanding the definition or rewriting the definition if the one that exists is toxic. Yes, absolutely. And to speak on the piece of how I'm choosing to raise my kids and um, I'm learning as I go, just like all of us. But what I feel is so important that my presence is the ministry. A woman's presence is her highest ministry. And so that is your energy. Like that is like everything about you, like your wholeness, like how you're showing up in every room, like through the tone of your voice, your body language. And that can only come from deep inside out. We can't fake it till we make it there. It's really important that we do the work of healing the unresolved and hidden traumas so that we can respond and be in a place of being so present with the people that we love and we're not reactive or, you know, everything is like a ping pong experience of our own triggers. Like, no, it's about the sexy, holy energy. And sexiness for me is whatever is alive. It's not this performance. It's not the cover of Maxim magazine or what the male gaze says is sexy. What's truly sexy to me in a woman is when she is so embodied in whatever is alive in her. Her anger, her happiness, her sadness, whatever is real and flowing, like own it. That is life. Sexiness is life. Like, ooh, when we see someone so alive, isn't it so attracting, captivating? Mm -hmm. Someone who is like unabashedly who they are and feeling their feelings and but not collapsing into the full identity with their feelings. Like there's this ability when you are like so mm, in it and you're just a woman, this mature being, you can feel it all, but still be bigger than that. And so I can feel my anger, I can feel my grief, but I am still bigger than that. And I can hold space for myself. I am a sanctuary for myself. And that is what I aim to be for my kids, is a true sanctuary, a, a safe place for them to come. And that holy piece of the sexy, holy energy, <coughs> excuse me, is this recognizing that there is sacredness in all things, or at least a sacred opportunity that even the darkest things can be turned into light, can be used in service to the light. So there is nothing that we should be afraid of. Our mistakes, our failures, all of it belongs. All of it can be in service to the light. So I really do try to practice that with my kids and, and really give them this sense that it's okay. We're going to make mistakes. It's not the end of the world to fail that there is something beautiful and redemptive about everything. And that's what my Christian faith has given me is the story of redemption. That that is always our choice to believe that and that life can begin again at any moment. And I've really held on to that as a key philosophy for me. You know, plan B, 
your curveballs, whatever life hands you. Like you're never down and out forever. Life can begin again. And so my my desire is to help women really own this sexy, holy energy within them and to become these like temples, these walking like sanctuaries where they're a safe place for themselves and a safe place for their loved ones and then for the world at large. Well, as I continue to um, wipe snot from my face, um, I just... I'm so grateful, Morgan, to you for showing up um, so, so fully and so embodied and so vulnerably for everyone. And this conversation really did take on a life of its own. <laughs> I had so many things written down <laughs> and I was like, I don't know how we're going to make this work. And it just, it happened. And what a gift and what a gift you are. And thank you for um, the work. Like there's so much work that goes into transforming, you know, your a story and a trauma into your purpose and into your passion and into healing for other people. And I just want to acknowledge you for that. And thank you from the deepest part of my heart for being here today. Thank you so much. Kristen. Hey, thank you so much for hanging in there and listening with an open and curious heart. I hope this conversation has inspired, educated, and entertained you, or at the very least, shaken things up in a productive way. Ann Voskamp says that shame dies when stories are told in safe places. So please share, rate, and review. Sending you love and dark chocolate. Talk soon.